Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. For most of my life, my best friend has been Chris Covington. The seeds of this friendship were first planted when we were five, but didn't fully blossom until we were 13, the same year I got really into music and wanted to start a band. Chris played drums and had a nice drum kit. Plus, he was, and still is, a pretty funny guy. So as we were learning to play music together, we are also both becoming obsessed with it, bonding over records and discovering new ones. He and I share a unique language, and few people can make me laugh the way that he can. He can also be a really infuriating person, as I'm sure I can be to him as well. And there have been times in the past in which our friendship had to go on short hiatuses, but there was always something that would bring us back together. We do disagree on a number of things, but one thing we pretty much have always agreed on is music. And the record that we've probably bonded over the most is The Glands by the Athens, Georgia band, The Glands. It's one of my favorite records of all time, and when I listen to it, I often think about my best friend. Now I think enough time has passed to where I can tell this story without consequence. I used to always know where my mother hid the Christmas gifts before wrapping them, and that year I had asked for the glands. This was 2001, during my holiday break after my first semester of college. So I found my soon-to-be copy of the glands in my mother's closet, and I really wanted to listen to this album. Now before you start to think that I was a really rotten son, Please keep in mind, and it might be hard to imagine this, but this was during a time in which you couldn't just instantly listen to any song that's ever been recorded like you can now. So I got a razor blade and I cut an opening at the bottom of the CD and gently eased the jewel case out of its wrapping, took the CD out, and carefully put the case back into the plastic wrap and back into its hiding place in my mother's closet. That evening... Chris and I, as well as our dear friend James Sewell, who we also played music with, drove around Noonan looking at Christmas lights, listening to this album. I think about this night so much when listening to The Glands. I quickly fell in love with this band, and soon after got a hold of their first record, Double Thriller, and instantly loved it as well. There was something about these records, especially the self-titled, that felt so mysterious with new facets persistently revealing themselves after multiple listens. So in the ensuing years, my love would continue growing for these records, and in loving this band, it also meant accepting their long periods of inactivity. I'd hear or read stuff every once in a while that a third record would be coming out, but for the most part the band would remain quiet. This, however, did not diminish my devotion. Maybe someday we'd hear some more material, but if not, Double Thriller is pretty great, and the self-titled record is a masterpiece. Sadly, in 2016, the band's leader, Ross Shapiro, passed away from lung cancer. And rightfully so, things got quiet. But in October of 2018, it was announced that the wonderful label, New West Records, would be releasing a glance box set titled, I Can See My House From Here, which would contain a reissue of both Double Thriller, and The Glands, as well as a compilation of unreleased material titled Double Coda. And to make this story even more of a full circle, for Christmas that year, 
I received this box set. And when I got home, I put on the Glands 2000 self-titled record, and much like I'd done so many times before, I listened. This is the story of that record. My name is Joe Rowe, and I was uh, the co-founder of the Glands along with Ross and the drummer for um, the whole time that the Glands were together. Him and I are the only constant members of the band for that, and that was um, t for 23 years. I guess from since about what I consider it, I like about 1993. I close to that as I can figure. We started him and I started kind of getting together and playing, and um, up until the time that he um, died in t 2016. Though the Glands would become one of Athens' most beloved bands, neither of its founding members originally hailed from the classic city. Rowe would spend the majority of his youth in New Jersey before moving with his family to Georgia. I grew up in New Jersey um, from the time I was two years old until I was about 17 or 18. I moved down south the summer after my junior year of high school. My whole family came down here because my dad got a job transfer from oh, okay. up from New Jersey down to the south and um, just lived in like the Stone Mountain Tucker area for about not even a year and then came to Athens in 1987 to go to school and I've been here ever since but I remember very vividly being a kid and um, going my mom would always take me and my brother to the same haircut place and I remember looking at like a People or a um, Time magazine or something, and they did a page or two about the Athens, like the burgeoning Athens scene at the time. And I remember thinking, um, dang, that sounds like a perfect place for me, but I'll probably never get there because it's so far away and I'm so young. It is after a year of living in Athens that Roe eventually meets his future bandmate, Ross Shapiro. A native of Atlanta, Shapiro has some years before initially relocated to Athens to study art at the University of Georgia. Um, I met Ross shortly after I'd um, failed out of school the first time because I did go back, try to go back again a little while later. I was a freshman at UGA in 1987, and I failed out, I guess, in like sometime in '88. And, um, and then I almost immediately started working at the Eurorap downtown where Ross was the manager. And that's when I first met him. And I don't know how I, why I wound up working at the Eurorap. I think I had gone there with somebody for lunch, and um, it just seemed like a really cool place. And it was right downtown. It was right across the street from the, literally right across the street from the campus. And I worked there for eight years, and Ross worked there for about 12 years. He was working there. He was a manager there when I started working there, like I said. And um, it was just a really great, for one thing, it was a great music education. The owner, David Carter, he would just let everybody who worked there play whatever they want, pretty much like literally whatever they wanted to on the stereo. 
um, it was like there was a cassette player back there and a bunch of boxes of tapes. And so it was just everything. Um, Rape Man, Killdozer, Steely Dan, Prince, you name it. But yeah, a little bit of everything. There was like people there had different slightly. And, you know, Sonic Youth, I remember a lot of that. And Bong Water. But uh, yeah, it's like everybody had like slightly different tastes. And there was uh, just really cool, smart, funny artists that were working there um, at the time. It's probably still pretty much the same way. There was uh, musicians, artists, actors, writers. They were all working there. And a lot of people, it was a place to hang. It was like one of, uh, back then when I started, I think it was the only uh, one of two places in Athens that had a cappuccino machine, an espresso machine. And um, you could smoke cigarettes in there for a long time. So it was like just a place where a lot of people a lot of interesting people hung out and met each other. And also Craig McQuiston, who uh, kind of pretty much the band's, the Glenn's first bass player, he worked there also for a while with us. And Neil Golden, who later on played keyboards with us a couple different times, he still works there. After working with each other for a time at the Euro Rap, Shapiro and Rowe began playing music together. It was a little while after I, after I met him and we were working together. I, I was playing in some other bands. The best I can remember is that him and I started playing together like around, I think, 1992 or 1993. And um, I kind of have a, to me anyway, it's kind of a funny story about that. I kept bugging him to come see my other bands that I was playing in. And so one night um, I was playing in a band called Bliss, this three-piece band that I really liked back then. He finally came out to see us play at the Rockfish Palace, uh, which isn't there anymore. He brought our friend Rand, who we worked with also, who was a drummer. And um, they happened to be the only two people in the audience that night that we played. <laughs> and I just remember the both of them sitting in this little round table, kind of like out in the middle of the floor while we were playing, and they were the only two people there. I always thought that was pretty funny. Shortly after he saw us play, he asked me if I wanted a jam with him so I would start going over his house and uh, just get together and play stuff that he had been writing. He did have these songs, these pop rock songs together, pretty much together. And um, and it was really, I found it really, really easy for me whatever he was doing like was like right up my alley it was pretty much just kind of like straightforward four on the floor stuff at least at the time and so yeah they were kind of like half formed songs or maybe you know like three quarters formed songs playing together at shapiro's house eventually leads to the recording project that would become the glands it is during one of their earliest recording sessions that roe hears for the first time shapiro's distinctive singing voice I vividly remember that moment because I hadn't really heard Ross's vocals before on these songs. He never really sang when he rehearsed. Almost the whole time that the Glance was together, he rarely sang his vocal parts um, during rehearsal. Um, but we um, we had went into the studio for the first time with our friend Peter Fancher, who wound up recording a lot of the Glance stuff. And um, it was it was right before he moved the studio to Elixir downtown across mm-hmm. from the 40 watt. It was just he had a really cool recording studio set up in his house on Franklin Street. 
yeah it was great we just like him ross and i went in and just played the instrumental a few songs together and then i just went in the control room and peter had ross go into the recording room and sing over the songs that we had just laid down to me it just sounded so amazing i was like whoa this is so good man i i tell you it's like i don't know how i wound up playing with such a great singer and songwriter but i sure do consider myself lucky for years shapiro would talk of wanting to make a record with various friends not quite knowing his degree of seriousness but with Roe now on drums, and through his friendship with Elixir Recording Studio owner Peter Fancher, Shapiro could now make this record, and he would call it Double Thriller. As far as I can remember, he, he always got a kick out of that title, so he thought it was funny. Ross pretty much always said that he was working on a record, that he wanted to put a record together. And so I remember that always pretty much being um, talked about um, for, you know, most, at least most of the time from almost kind of from the beginning when we started playing together. We kind of would play with just a bunch of different people here and there, just friends and stuff. And I know, I do know that some people said that they, they had no idea that Ross, they didn't know that Ross wanted to make a record or Ross was like serious about what we were doing. They just thought it was... uh well you, well, you know how it is in the moment. You just, you don't know what what something might could be. Ross, he was a night manager a lot at the Eurorap at that time, working at night. And they would get out of there usually like around 11, 10 or 11 at night. And then, and then a lot of times we would, everybody would be available then to go into the studio because it was so late in the night already. And everybody, for the most part, was free. Yeah, it was very loose. I mean, we would we would start recording almost right away when we got into a room and playing together. And uh, we necessarily wouldn't know how to start or end the songs a lot of the times, but we kind of pretty much knew what was in the in between. And um, and so a lot of it kind of wound up being improv in, in a way. And um, yeah, I think people really didn't know that, you know, someone would say, oh, well, that that guitar solo was okay, but let's let's do it again, and I think I can really nail it. And Ross would be on to the next song. So it was really cool yeah. that it was like really sporadic and really energetic and just like really in the moment. And then Ross kind of, and then Ross would just kind of fix things later on in the editing. Like um, if we didn't have the ending of a song, he would just stop the tape, and you know put in a put a, a reverb, heavy reverb on the last thing that you heard or something like that sometimes i know that we worked on it for about three years because um the the record the 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 finished version of the record that ross um and i put out ourselves came out we made that in 96 and um i remember i remember back then thinking to myself that it took three years for this to come together during the time in which Double Thriller is being made, musician Doug Stanley contributes to the recording. This would eventually lead to him joining the band. Uh, I'm Doug Stanley. I was the, uh, initially the keyboardist of the glands, and then once Frank McDonald quit uh, in 1999, I became 
the sort of working guitar player and uh, Ross and I both sort of shared keyboard duties. And then uh, I guess along about the same period, I was playing some bass too. Yeah, I was friends with Kelly Noonan, who worked at the Euro Rap. She was a waitress. And they, I used to go in there because it was dark and cool in the summer. And, you know, most of the guys working there were pretty cool. And they had, they always had good music playing. I noticed like immediately and they always had this great tunes in there. Ross turned out to be the manager. Yeah, so I met him. Fun. I, I didn't know he played any music at all, but he was really funny and, you know, he was a great guy. So great to have conversations with. Love Tractor was recording in the same studio and I was in and out of the studio, uh, you know. And I think one night I was with Peter who we were, I think I was overdubbing something in, uh, with Love Tractor. And he asked me, hey, do you want to check this out? This, this is Ross's stuff. I was like, sure. And uh, it was a couple of the songs off that record, Sunshine Happiness, I think, and uh, Skin, maybe. And I was like, wow, this is great. And he said, uh, they happen to have this organ in there that was like a really fancy B3 that had just been worked on. And some other band was using that to record. And so he said, hey, play this, play this organ on this song. So he, he just tracked, he just played the song pretty much and had me play it. I didn't really know how it went. That's the organ for Pretty Marina and Ross. You know, we, I didn't talk to Ross at a time. So Peter, <laughs> you know, when he asked me that, I was kind of like, "Well, I think it's okay with Ross if I play on his music when I'm known about it." So he, luckily, he liked it. Originally self-released by Shapiro and Rowe, Double Thriller is re-released in '98 by the Hoboken, New Jersey-based independent label Bar None Records. We made a thousand copies, or I should really say Ross made a thousand copies of the um, Double Thriller initially, and we sent them out to a bunch of different record labels, and then Bar None liked it and um, re-released it, or, you know, put it out, really. With Bar None, we did different artwork than we than Ross and, and I had put together. Track listing is different. Shortly after the Bar None version came out, Ross was... Want, wishing that he had kept the initial track listing but yeah and so that's what we we with these reissues with new west we put it back to the original track sequence with their first record complete it was decided to make the recording project a proper band and to begin playing shows though it would be a fairly consistent lineup that would record the majority of the songs that were to make up their next record the glands would have a shifting lineup throughout their time as a band 
with Shapiro and Rowe being the only constant members. Ross started getting the band together to practice to play gigs. And that was uh, Frank and or actually initially Kevin Sweeney and Craig and Joe and Ross. And then that was, I think, two. They played two gigs, maybe, maybe three. And then that was 97, I want to say. And then 98, Kevin couldn't keep doing it. And then Frank came in on guitar. And then I think uh, I was doing a lot of work with Love Tractor at the time. And Ross asked me to play guitar. And I, I told him I, I was just, you know, I didn't want to try to stretch it with two bands. So uh, I didn't play for a while. And then, then immediately, like, the Love Tractor, nothing was happening. <laughs> so I didn't, I wasn't playing at all. So I asked Ross if he needed a keyboard. You know, I, I'm not even a keyboard player, really, but just to, just to do something, something to do. And uh, he, he let me play keyboards for that first year. And then Frank quit, I guess, once we started recording the, the self-titled record, he wanted to play another band. And, and so I started playing guitar. And we finished up that record like that with, with Craig playing bass, me playing guitar. And then after about a year, Craig actually quit. And uh, then we didn't really didn't have a bass player. So we did the thing where Ross played keyboards, I played bass, and Joe played drums, and we recorded a bunch of songs like that. We recorded those at, at Ross's house uh, with Andy actually engineering. And Andy, Andy was really always the engineer after about... 99 yeah so it was kind of like it was pretty amorphous after that for a few years but it was really it was really joe andy ross and i in preparing for their next record shapiro goes about compiling songs using some that were first started during the double thriller sessions but also pulling from his ever-growing catalog of material he was always writing songs he was extremely prolific um i know that there's some crossover I know that those we were probably playing some of those self-titled, or I'm sure that we were, yeah, playing at least some of those self-titled record songs when we were recording Double Thriller. Definitely a little bit of crossover. Probably safe to say that the self-titled songs were came a little bit later. He had so much stuff kind of already that, you know, we didn't know if it was new or if it had been sitting around, and he was just sort of recycling it. Um, it didn't matter to us really either way, but... It was just pretty much we we would get together for rehearsal and he would bring the bring these songs in and we were constantly rehearsing like and and never playing shows we would rehearse a lot and um, so I I do definitely remember the self titled songs had a lot more rehearsal behind them and a lot more like of all the players having time to figure out exactly what they wanted to do and for it, all of it to come together a lot more than the double thriller songs. Around this time, the band signs with the legendary Southern label Capricorn Records. Founded in the late 60s by Otis Redding's manager, Phil Walden, the Macon, Georgia-based label played a seminal role during the Southern rock movement of the 1970s, releasing records by the Allman Brothers and the Marshall Tucker Band. Having declared bankruptcy in 79, the label was relaunched in the 90s. Eventually relocating to Atlanta, the label began signing independent acts such as San Francisco's Beulah, as well as Athens-based artists Vic Chestnut and Jucifer. Yeah, it was great. It was cool. Um, although, I do remember thinking they have a great legacy, but what our stuff... I was wondering how that really kind of fit into like the mostly kind of Southern rock legacy that I knew of, you know, and I think the the idea was like, we were told that they're kind of trying to, I don't know, necessarily branch out is the right kind of term, but just kind of, you know, keep current. 
I think Kevin had a deal with Capricorn, uh, Kevin Sweeney, and uh, he, you know, he got Ross to talk to Jason. Anyway, so they went that route, and uh, uh, it was it was pretty cool. You know, it, the thing was like Ross. It was Ross made the deal without us. So it was like him as a solo. He was like Ross Shapiro, aka the Glands. So legally, we had side contracts with Ross. Also, everybody was like, everybody was hustling. We were just always hustling. Um, like working our day jobs and trying to record and doing every, you know, doing all the other stuff in life that you got to do. And it was never like the thing where like we had to, you know, have a big signing party like with Capricorn Records and the Glands with champagne and cigars and like, and we can just, and we're set, you know, we can just sit back and watch the money roll in. And, you know, it was never that kind of scenario. It was kind of like the kind of thing that you might think about me when you're younger and uh, the big record, the big record label signing dream. It was all kind of, uh, I don't know. I mean, it was great that it was great that we knew that our, that record was going to come out and people were going to be able to hear it. They, within like a couple of weeks or something of that, they lost their distribution deals and nobody could buy the record for like a year and a half. <laughs> so it was completely, you know, it had all this press and everything and you couldn't get it because... Capricorn was like downsizing and becoming set. For the majority of the record, the band works with David Barbie at his Chase Park Transduction Studio in Athens. Barbie, who played with Athens to Barbecue Killers and Mercyland, as well as Bob Mole's post Husker Du project Sugar, would go on to produce many notable artists, including the Drive By Truckers and Deer Hunter. Peter Fancher and future Glance bassist Andy Baker would also receive producer's credit. David Barbie recorded the bulk of the self-titled record at Chase Park, but there's some Peter Fancher songs on there too. Probably a thing of like combination of David being a buddy of ours and wanting to hang out with him and work with him, and then also wanting, you know, after and wanting maybe to do just do something that was a little bit different to mix things up. Anybody who's listed as a producer was the engineer on the song. Ross know what he was doing as far as the vocals and the, the words and the, the song structure. But when it came to recording, you know, you don't really know what you have to hear. It so, says, you know, when you're in the studio, that's the time you have to make decisions on what to add and what kind of parts to play. So that's, I think that's what producer means in this case. You know, it, it just facilitates the recording. Just, just knowing what to do. Just, you know, usually it would just be somebody who's working with Ross doing vocals. They want to try another vocal part here you know, try, try a keyboard thing here. And I think we had one session with Dave, two sessions with Dave. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was literally like two days, I think. It was really fast. We just went in and like cut them. We did, we did a lot of it live. We did as much as we could together live. I remember that too. We weren't in the studio, at least for tracking the songs. We weren't in the studio for, for most of these songs very long because we had worked them out so much ahead of time that we didn't need to be in the studio for long we would usually probably take stuff on like the first second or third take and keep that and then uh the rest of the guys would finish the song up probably some of the songs were um we had kind of recorded already during like the double thriller sessions Mm -hmm. but once we got into chase park probably spent most of our time there at that point, at least like rec- doing all the recording. Ross probably went back and forth 
um, a good bit with both Peter and, and David as far as mixing all the songs and putting them together and stuff around the same time. Ross was a really good producer. I remember him telling me one story about um, working on a song, working with David. It has this swell, this kind of like swelling thing that starts the song that's just like a, a drone. And uh, Ross liked to do a lot of that. Ross liked to put a lot of droney kind of stuff in his songs. But I remember him asked Helen David that he wanted like what he was hearing in his head for that sound. And I think David actually came up with the sounds. Can't remember what he did. I think he did so, just did something on the guitar, maybe a slide and some pedals or something. But um, so, you know, that would happen sometimes where Ross would hear a sound in his head, but he wouldn't know how to do it technically. And Peter or Andy or David would figure it out. And in the end, they made a record. All great records open with a great song, and the glands living was easy, it's just that. The track opens with a muffled and distant sound of intercoms and drums that abruptly ends with an alarm clock, as if to signify the awakening of the song's protagonist and his realization of the error he's made in leaving home. This sentiment is then greatly expressed through the song's wonderful and themic chorus. With its slide guitar and touches of harmonica, it's a loose number that in a way sounds like a warped indie rock version of Southern Boogie. Know, before the alarm clock goes off there's like that um that i think ross said is uh an airport kind of loudspeaker kind of voice that you can hear a little bit drums beat starts first um yeah i really love how ross put all that together but i don't know where that voice recording over like the pa voice recording mm-hmm. comes from exactly i don't know so I really can't say anything about that. All I can say is that I really like it. Really cool bit of editing. Really cool intro there. The Living Was Easy is actually leftover from Elixir. And that was like the best song that they had done in Elixir. And I, I don't think, I don't know if it was, wasn't ready for Double Thriller or maybe it was recorded kind of as they were finishing Double Thriller. It's actually one of the only songs I didn't actually play on at all. I'm, I'm not, I didn't play anything on it. Because that's all Ross's guitar and Ross vocals and Joe and Craig. 
that was one of those songs that when we recorded it at the time, we, we really didn't weren't exactly sure what we were doing. And then we just wound up, keep, you know, Ross wound up keeping the, the take that he did. Um, and it works great, but it's very, the rhythm of it is very, like, very, um, it's not, it's definitely not played to a drum machine or a mm-hmm. click track. I mean, for that's for sure. So I love the feel of it. And it's, um, it, it's perfect feel for kind of like the sentiment of the, the words in that song, which is singer comes pretty much kind of sounds like a slacker. Yeah. I love that. It's woozy, that it's woozy like that on the rhythm. Don't know who played the harmonica. It was probably Ross. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if it was Ross because it sounds like a really easy part. And he always did have a harmonica. He always had those around the house. Some people don't really realize that there's the harmonica part yeah. on that song. Ross never talked about his, what his songs were about. He hardly ever talked about himself at all, period. Um, so if you would ask him sometimes what a song might be about, um, he would just look at you and shrug his shoulders. Usually, he wouldn't even say anything. But to me, that song sounds like somebody who was like living, who moved, who was living with their parents and moved out of their parents' house, and is kind of like w- wondering why they did it, why they made that mistake. That's kind of what I take away from the lyrics, so, or something like that, something similar to that situation. Following Living Was Easy is the Driving When I Laugh, which is the first of three tracks from The Glands, the other two being Straight Down and Work It Out. It really highlights the rhythm section of Roe and McQuiston. I always think of those as kind of like our, in a way, our like really straight ahead, like kind of pop rock masterpieces. They're like, they're chugging along, they're more upbeat. We could have a lot of mid-tempo songs or slower songs. Uh, When I Laugh is one of those songs that uh, was on the first Space Park session with Dave, Barbie, uh, with Frank McDonald playing guitar, and I was playing uh, organ. So we went and just cut it as a five-piece live, probably two takes or something. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I don't want to give credit to the wrong person, but I'm pretty sure that um, Craig McQuiston played bass on When I Laugh. Um, Yeah, he's a great bass player. Craig, he's a really, really good bass player. He just has this killer feel and this killer instinct. He's been living in New York for quite a while now. He's he's a tour manager for different acts. uh, And he doesn't even really play bass anymore, unfortunately. He's too busy working as a tour manager. But um, yeah, he's, he's a great bass player. 
As stated in the title, Swim Prelude is essentially that, an introduction to the pop gem that is Swim. I remember it was always part of the song. Like we, when we initially worked the song out, I was that was the first thing I think I'd ever recorded on bass, and Craig had just left, and so I all we could do is like Ross would play the Rhodes, and I had a bass, and, and the Joe, and uh, he he that was always like part of the song. We always we always started with the prelude and kind of did the did the part. He would just kind of play those chords on the on the Rhodes. Um, but later the cello was added. Victor did that cello part, or I think it's like four cellos or something, three or four cellos. But that was something he he liked to break things in, especially if it was a simple structure. If you make it into two parts, it sounds more interesting. But, but he he always intended to do that. I'm pretty sure. That was the guy named Victor Usher on cello. I think he was from Russia. Uh, he was going to school at the University of Georgia, and he was in Athens for a while. And him and this other guy named Andre, who was uh, it's same situation with him. They would play. They would play shows sometimes. I think they just build themselves as Victor and Andre, and they would do classical string versions of like Metallica songs and Queen songs and stuff like that, which is really pretty great. But Ross, yeah, Ross wound up working with both of them for a little while, and I, I don't think Andre wound up on any of the recordings, that at least the ones that were put out. And it's calling you to come Nichols, hey, hey, Joe Come on in, the water's warm We've been here waiting for you Oh, hey, Joe Come on back and see us more And everyone adores you It's hard to say what my favorite song on this record is because there's just so many great ones. But Swim is definitely up there. There's so many great aspects of this song. The cellos, the piano, the tight arrangement that starts to go off the rails towards the end. It's Beatlesque pop without sounding like 60s pastiche, which is an example of what made this band so special. They had this ability to borrow different elements from pop music, but totally make it their own. This song also highlights Rose's tasteful drumming. He's long been one of my favorite drummers because of the subtlety in his style. He's never showing off, just simply doing what's best for the song. Yeah, I think I finally got to that point after a long, long time of playing. Real, I realized like the song, the song rules. Uh, you know, nothing is as important as the song. We got really lucky, Ross and I did. It just seemed like we were like always um, just really like right on the same page and um, to me Ross's songs were very self-explanatory there wasn't really much of any more than one way I would 
play mm-hmm. most of Ross's parts in, in his songs just because his, it was great. Uh, that's what I loved about playing with Ross, the way that, to me anyway, the way that he wrote songs, they just really, really dictated to me like exactly what I should be playing on drums. It was like a real no-brainer most mm-hmm. of the time. I just almost right away knew what needed to be done. Um, I think that we got very lucky or whatever, however it worked out is that we kind of were able and did touch on like a lot of different kind of genres from song to song. And it is mostly kind of like classic rock sounding. It doesn't sound too much like, anything else and it sounds contemporary enough and i think that was probably a big part of our appeal to people and i think that we got really lucky that it just our sound just kind of happened to to gel like that and work out like that the first time i'd ever played recorded bass like for real and i was kind of nervous but i remember it was fun to record because it was real clean there wasn't any guitar to kind of you know muddy things and you could really lock in with the drums uh, it was just, you know, really you know, bouncy, kind of easy mid-tempo. So it was just really easy to lock down with Joe and the and the keys. I just remember uh, playing some, I did some little, new, I started by keeping it real simple and playing the basic notes. And then they, he wanted me to noodle more and more. So I eventually got pretty noodly on the bass. I'm not sure if they put two parts together or how that, what actually ended up being on there. But I, I think we recorded it maybe two, three times and they just took the good parts and, you know, made the track, but it's pretty much live. But Ross would, Ross would fix, uh, whoever, when he recorded a rough track, it'd, it'd always get the rhythm guys to fix the, you know, bass mistakes, punch the bass mistakes in, and uh, if there were any, and then, uh, you know, drums, or get that right, and then worry about his stuff, and then he'd do his stuff 800,000 times for two weeks, and <laughs> wear the tape out for eight hours. Long. He'd, just, he'd just play it over and over and over, so he, he always made his part, like, as good as he could, but he'd like to keep other people like quick and simple and, you know. I do know um, that that song is about me, written by Ross about me, um, because, you know, he says, hey, hey, Joe, um, in the song. And I had uh, asked, it took a little while. I can't remember if it took a a little while for me to put it together or to ask him about it, but... um, and I do remember there's one line in there, um, something like uh, something about the water. Come on in, the water's warm, and we've been here waiting for you, or something like that. And I'm pretty sure that refers to there was a time that we were on tour. We were playing in Florida, and we went to the beach. For some reason, I wouldn't get in the water, um, and I don't know why because I love to swim, but I didn't wouldn't get in the water then. And uh, I'm pretty sure that line is about that, of us being together. Yeah, I think he got me pretty good on that song. Um, I was really, it's, I'm really flattered. It's really touching that, uh, you know, that he wrote a song about me, um, or at least partly about me, or I'm in, I'm in the song. I think there's another line, too, that I guess says something like, um, your, your lips are moving, but there's nothing coming out. And that that probably he probably got me pretty good on that one too. Um. <laughs> that tape was a tape that had been used at Elixir. 
it was a two inch tape and it had tracks on it. And, and I think we were, we were printing over something else. It was like a used tape and that's just something that came up. Some band had recorded and, and we had the, you know, the track was open. It came up on the thing, but it was just in there. It was just on the tape because it was a used tape. And Peter, Peter Fancher had recorded this band at a mixer and that just comes through when they were mixing it. They just, they realized they could use that and make it sound interesting. So yeah, that was just something that was on the tape. Following Swim is the slow and dreamy psychedelic pop of Mayflower. The song, like many on the record, contains some nice subtle textures that fill in the sonic space. There are these small details such as the Mellotron and classical music sample that are not always apparent until after multiple listens. Like I've said, this is a record that reveals itself over time. And, to this day, I'm still not sure what Shapiro is singing in the chorus. idea what that song is about and i remember when um when i sang the started singing the backup vocals to it live i he the words that he told me to sing were not the words that i was hearing so that was interesting to me something about a bull in the chorus when like when the song kind of moves says something about a bull i never heard the word as bull until he told me to sing that I mean, I just love the images and, and the lines in that song of like, you have very noble features and the roots that run so deep go all the way to China. I think that's a great line. He might have been talking about, I mean, we had some friends. I remember he had a girlfriend for a long time who was from Brazil. There was a couple of our other friends, you know, who were not born in the United States. So he might have been talking about one of them particularly that he knew with, without giving too much away. Mayflower is one of the few songs, or one of the songs for sure, that I do remember very vividly recording. And um, we probably got that, I think that we got that one on the first take when we recorded it. And that song that is a very, very simple, one of your most basic drum beats that you can play, and it stays that same way throughout the whole song from beginning to end. It just doesn't change a bit, which was really fun for me to play. And, um, and the guitar and the bass parts are kind of wind around the drum, the straightforward drum. I was happy when I realized I could play straight through what, to me, 
kind of sounded like an odd time signature and that it worked well. That's some kind of classical record. I don't know exactly what piece of music it is, but Ross lifted that off of some vinyl record, and it's just kind of fucked with a little bit. And it's very low in the mix, too, you know, so you can't really make it out, make out what piece of music it is. That was in the lifter, and that was actually during the double thriller period, um, sort of before I was really playing. That would have been 96. And that was Larry Tenor playing bass on that one. Uh, he did Mayflower and also Soul Inspiration. That was Larry Tenor. Uh, he played the bass. It was really, it's actually a really cool bass line. Um, he had a great bass uh, style. And he played in a band with Frank called Magneto. So they were they knew each other, and that was that that connection. Yeah, Ross Ross did all that Mellotron parts. I remember because I think we played it live, and Joe we had Joe play the that part, and uh, and we had a drum machine, and Joe would play the keyboard part, and then Ross would play the guitar. I think I played steel guitar to kind of mimic the steel part. Ross was a really good writer of keyboard parts, but like his technical proficiency on piano wasn't really good at all. I mean, it got better as the years went by, but um, you know, he would he would do he would uh, one finger a lot of stuff. With its mechanical-like drums, busy bass line, and double-tracked call-and-response vocals, the song Love Town, to me, has always felt mysterious. It was the first song I heard by the Glands. I remember first listening to it on the Velocet Records website in my college dorm room, and it was like nothing I had ever heard up until that point. I still feel the same sense of wonder when I hear it, which I'm grateful for because not many songs in my life have this ability. I remember I was living with Ross. I lived with, in Ross's house on Sunset um, for two years, and I was um, recording a lot of my own stuff on a four-track machine. And I remember being at the house, and I was starting to mess around with the four-track machine, and Ross was leaving to work, and Ross said, hey, why don't you try to come up, like, demo some parts for some Glenn songs, which was really the only time that I ever remember him asking me to do anything like that. And so I recorded a few things and played them for him, and um, he wound up using the beat, the drum part for Love Town, from the song that I demoed, 
but I think I had I had at least a, like another ba- a bass part over it too, or whatever else I had on the drum part. He didn't wind up using, but we did wind up using the drum beat for Love Town, which I really like. I think it's kind of fun. I've also very vividly remember when it came time to record it, and I we recorded that at Elixir also. When it came to like what I would call the chorus, which just has the kind of like humming. I remember um, I wasn't playing what I wound up playing, and Ross told me specifically. He said, "Hey, play this part like this. You know, it's got that like kind of a doom chat chat doom chat chat chat. Yeah, like a laid back surf beat with that like the double uh, snare hit every other time. And right away I was like, oh yeah, of course, that's perfect for for this part. That's brilliant. That works great. And that was always so much fun to play too." The instrumentation that's going along with that verse part, it's there's a real heavy, there's probably a, I'm sure that there's a bass guitar, but there's also probably like a synth or a keyboard also playing a really low, you know, a really low, heavy bass part. The bass part in that song is like really thick and really doubled up and a little bit overdriven. I love that call and response. That's really cool. Like, um, yeah, just tell me what you want. Oh, I don't know. That doesn't leave us much. Ross wrote great words. Oh, and also, whenever I hear that song recorded, I guess we wound up playing it quite a bit faster in our live sets, and it always sounds really slow to me when I hear the recorded version of that. I think maybe Love Towners are like our most kind of new wavy sounding song, the mechanical aspect and the real, and the kind of like low, overdriven riff riff sound of it Following Love Town is the power pop masterpiece, Straight Down. There's such an incredible swagger to this track, and its sound is timeless, as if it could have been released in any of the decades of the last 50 years. It's a song that necessitates repeated listening. Okay, I think this is my favorite song on the record. Uh, Straight Down, that was one that we all kind of wrote together. Um, Craig, Ross, myself, and Joe... Um, I think we recorded that one one other song. I'm not, I can't remember which song, but um, that would have been after Frank left and I was playing guitar. I know it was always one of my favorite songs to play because it's just like a um, straight ahead, faster pop rocker. And I always knew that it was a good song. I knew what it was. I knew like what kind of song that it was and what kind of song that it needed to be. 
And uh, Ross's lyrics are always confusing, kind of confounding on this song, too. It's like, says something about a, the, a poodle, the color of tomato. He liked to joke around and say that the words were just an excuse to get to the jams, which I I quote that from time to time. And uh, I mean, Ross never did say, at least not that I heard, like what the song was about necessarily. But it's definitely a rocker. It's a tough sounding song, which those songs are always fun to play. It's always fun to to act like you're tough for three minutes. And then the guitar solo, it's a great solo. The song wouldn't be as good without a great solo because it's kind of one of those songs that really, or it really makes sense that it has a guitar solo in it, like a really rocking guitar solo. box and this AC30 and I had an old beat up Red Hoffner guitar that I had that I'd hardly ever played but it had a, it had a lot of gain and it really tended to feed back so it was just feeding back like crazy so I just kind of after the solo I just kind of let the notes ring and we just let the feedback come through you know that's what you hear in the background the solo is like it kind of stops in the middle of the solo the very end of the solo is kind of just sort of the beginning of another solo or something like that. I think we did like three, did it like three or four times. I think we cut it in like an hour or something. It was really fast. We cut it like super fast. Just went in and played it. And that was Andy from Engineering. Definitely Craig McQuiston played the bass on that. And there's a part, like rhythmically, there's a part in the song where it's kind of chugging along and then it goes, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to convey this, but it kind of goes like, and uh, they were doing that on their guitars and basses, but I wasn't doing it on the drums because I thought it kind of, and, and, you know, and they, and then Craig said to me, Hey man, you should hit those accents, you know, with us on that part. And I was like, really? That seems like really cheesy. And they were like, no man, that's rock and roll. It sounds great. So I do remember that happening when we were working it up, when we were rehearsing it. And that's why I remember for sure that uh, Craig played a really great bass part on it. On a record that's full of highlights, the track I Can See My House From Here is considered by many to be the centerpiece of this album. And in regards to Shapiro's songcraft, it's definitely one of his strongest. But as great as this song is, this is not the original version the band had initially intended for the record.
it was uh, a Frankie Valley song. Oh, what a night! And they kind of had sampled that or whatever, just took a recording of it. Bum, 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 bum. Just that one part, and the whole thing was just that was basically a sample of the chorus of that song. And then we put Craig played bass, he put bass on it, and Joe played drums, and Ross built it up that way out of the sample. And I think when we had the song together, um, oh, and that one was Craig playing. Craig played the guitar. That's right. Craig played the bass and the guitar. So that's just Craig, Joe, and Ross. That's right. And um, that's Craig playing that rhythm guitar and the bass. That awesome bass that's on there. But that's right. That was all built up, and Andy Andy engineered that. Um, and uh, I know when we got done, it was like one of the best songs, and Ross wanted to put it on the list to give Jason and uh they got in touch with the guy who wrote the song which was the drummer from the four seasons and he was like no way I don't want to give you permission he wouldn't give us permission to 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 use the sample so at the last minute we had to go back in the studio and kind of just make a fake version of the sample that was a little different played a slightly different piano part that's like just minimally different than the original I played a little piano, the grand piano on the end of it or something. There's some little noodly thing at the end. I think that's all I did. I recorded the, um, like, just the basic, the basic kick drum, snare drum, and hi-hat that goes through pretty much throughout the whole song. I don't think it really changes. They had me record that onto the song after the fact, like, after they already had the song, most of the song done. And I just went and played the that basic drum beat over the song. I think they got some big couple floor toms and like doom doom, you know, for some drum effect in there. That's what that is. But it was kind of a a substitute for the original thing. Yeah, that was funny that we cut to get around that. Um, to me that I don't know exactly what that song is about, but in the in general the lyrics to that song uh, I always kind of took away this kind of sense of just like kind of optimism mm-hmm. and community. And um, just like home, just the idea of home and, um, you know, and home being a, being a nice place. That same kind of sentiment comes up once or twice in some other Glam songs, too. And I think that's kind of Ross, Ross's philosophy, philosophy kind of was like that. It was like, let's do our thing, whatever that thing happens to be, and maybe somebody will like it, as opposed to let's try to do what we think somebody's going to like.
Fortress is a slice of dreamy mid-tempo indie rock. It's a song that sounds both loose and intricately detailed, and contains some wonderful guitar interplay between Shapiro and McDonald, with Stanley adding organ and vibraphone, creating a hazy, dreamlike atmosphere. Vibraphone sounds so cool. And uh, said that he borrowed that vibraphone from our friend Murphy, who used to own Tasty World downtown. And then Doug had it for a little while at his house, and he worked on it. He fixed it up a little bit and got it sounding good. I maybe had to fix some of the motors and stuff. They brought it into Chase Park when we were recording. And then a little while later, several days later or whatever, um, the guys said, hey, we talked to Murphy, and Murphy said we can keep the vibraphone down here at the studio for a while. Doug was upset because Doug had purposefully borrowed it from Murphy so that he could use it. And he spent all this time fixing it up and getting it sounding good and then brought it into the studio and played it on several different glam songs, not just that one. And then uh, I don't know who exactly um, swiped it out from underneath them. But that's just a little anecdote. Yeah, poor poor Doug. Yeah, Fortress, that was fun because that was the original sessions with Frank and uh, I was playing keyboards with uh, Barbie uh, you know, engineering those. We had the vibraphone. It had like two, like SM58s on it or something. I was like, no way, it's just going to sound good. It's some cheap, like beat up, like you know, male hundred dollar male vocal mic. And I was like, okay, cool. I didn't want to say anything. So, so we record it. We record the whole thing, and I, I think I got through it in like one or one take or two takes. And uh, so the vibraphone's live on that song with the rhythm tracks. And that that was all, you know for real, like live recording. And then the the organ was added as an overdub. I had this like cheap $40 kind of dying Farfisa organ that I use on everything. It was fun. It's a funny story because it was, there's this place called Nude Sound in, uh, in Athens. It was like a sort of a heavy metal music store that was open for a few years in the 90s. And it was the kind of place where you go in and there's like, you know, white and black checkered leather pants and all this heavy metal gear and stuff. I'm like, what is this place? And, and so in the back, literally I went back there and it was like the cliche, the, 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 uh, store guys like, you know, wailing on this like heavy metal wrist, you know, doing this hammer on thing and to impress some little 16 year old guy. <laughs> like watching. And I came in the room and I was like, Hey, what's, what's with this organ over here? It's like this, uh, you know, totally like sixties, not heavy metal thing in the corner. He's like, oh, that old thing, I'll, I'll sell it to you for 40 bucks. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> it was like very not heavy metal right in the middle when this guy was trying to impress the kid. And so I got a, I got a steal on that one because I was in the right kind of store.
Work It Out is another rollicking power pop gem highlighted by Shapiro's southern drawl and McDonald's wonderfully frenetic guitar soloing. That was the same session with uh, with Frank, the, the, the first and only one we did with Dave. And that was the same, same setup. I think I played the Farfies and Frank played uh, his uh, Les Paul Jr. Work It Out is, I think, another song that's like one of those kind of like pop rock hits that's like uh, straight down and when I laugh. And I remember Work It Out, um, that's a really cool solo. It's a really, it's a really cool song. I love playing that song. That was another song that was really so, a lot of fun to play because it was upbeat um, and it was kind of tough sounding. Yeah, that's the one. That I remember it had a really long solo. Like, nobody wanted to play the solo because it was like two minutes long. Because when I, after Frank left, I had to play it. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, you know, this 50, 58 second solo or something. Uh, but I think that one, I remember uh, Dave Barbie actually added a lower vocal part when we mixing it. So that lower, like, why do I feel blue and all I see is you that part that's actually Dave singing the low part I think it's the only time someone who wasn't officially in the band sang on the record but that was uh, that's what that was It out is the layered track Soul Inspiration with its mix of ambient sounds, sustained guitar notes, and snare fills that at times sounds like machine guns. It's a beautifully ramshackled song that sounds freewheeling and triumphant. Soul Inspiration, I want to say that one might have could have definitely been done recorded during the double thriller sessions. I think, anyway, that. That's kind of one of those songs that's not, um, that I remember anyway, as not being really as finished as some of the songs on this record and just being kind of, just more kind of improvised at the time. Although I really love the way that song starts. It's got ambient noise and um, I'm playing a fun, to me, a fun, really fun drum pattern. You know, a lot of stuff, it's funny, like a lot of stuff, I would, we, I'm sure this happened to all the other guys in the band too. We would just happen to play it, come up with it right in the moment, happen to be recording, and it would wind up being something that we thought was really cool. And we wouldn't know what it was when we went back to play it again because we just did it once. And depending on how lazy we felt, we would never play it the same way again, or we would take the time to learn what we did the first time. I remember that's how that a lot of that song was to me. 
yeah, I think we really just kind of got lucky and it all came together, but we really didn't know what we were doing. There were sometimes definitely songs where I would kind of overplay and play too much. So they would just kind of like, they would make the drums like really low in the mix, compressed and makes them a little bit fuzzy, but in a warm way. So that you kind of really just heard like the most important beat, the main beat. Thing else was kind of just like a wash in the background, which I'm a big fan of, actually. I like songs. I like songs where the drums are very low in the mix. There's a lot of songs like that where the vocals are really up front. Drums, you can kind of, there's just the idea of the drums. But yeah, you know, I was never, I can never really remember being present for any of the mixing of these songs, at least not near the final mixing of any of these songs. Um, and I was, and I, and that's a good thing. Like, I, it would have, I would have been a pain in the ass. Wouldn't have been helpful for me to be sitting there and telling them what I thought the drums should be mixed in the song. I had a pretty clear idea early on when I heard some of the first rough mixes. Uh, you know, I was like, yeah, this stuff sounds sounds good like this it's mixed well it might not be mixed perfect and maybe it could be mixed better but i don't want to be in the mix process ground is a mellow number with slight hints of jazz but is still very much in keeping with the overall sound of the glands through its use of atmospheric drones and rose subtle and steady drumming the same sessions with Frank and Barbie. Uh, ground, I played a Rhodes on that one, Ross's Rhodes, Electric Piano. Yeah, that's what that is. I did do a solo at the end of that. And all I remember about that was like, I, I'm not really a keyboard player, so it was always kind of a nail biter to try to track those songs because I would always mess, or it's, it's easy to mess up on keyboards and, and in a way that really sounds terrible and like you can't recover from <laughs> as fast as if you make a mistake on guitar. Like if you're, if you're playing guitar and like, you hit the wrong fret, you're going to know immediately to kind of come up or down and fix it. But if you're on keyboards and you, you get off, it might be 20 seconds before you figure out where you are, you know? So if you're like a fake keyboard player like me, so.
I know on that one, the, the problem was that keyboard was so dogged out. Like he got that thing for like 200 bucks and it was just, it was the action was just like beaten out of it. And uh, to play it, you had to like literally like karate chop the keys like, like hard just to get any note. Like if you hit it, nothing would happen. You had to really pound on the key to get a note. So that solo was like, I was just like bashing the keys with the side of my hand. I, guess, I remember just like hitting it as hard as I could. I think later he got it fixed, but at the time it was uh, it was pretty rough. I remember my hand was all beat up after after uh, an hour of that. But then we probably tracked it a couple times. I don't think it was. I don't think any of the sessions were like we dragged out the overdubs. I think it was all pretty fast. Man, I love ground. Ground is one of my favorite songs to play. And um, this is the song that earlier saying that Ross wanted this kind of drone thing to start. I think it kind of runs throughout the whole song. Yeah, and Ross had this idea in his head. He didn't know how to get it, and then David came up with something on a guitar somehow to get that kind of drone sound. I love that sound. Mm-hmm. The sound of that sounds so good. And um, and I really, I don't know. I kind of think I think of Ground as kind of one of our more orchestrated songs. Uh, I don't know. I just love the feel of it. Yeah, I think it has more subtleties to it than a lot of the glands songs do there's a part where it's like specifically goes to like this kind of jazzy kind of feel it might happen once in the song and then i would think it might come back again real soon mm-hmm. like go somewhere else for a little while and then come back to that again it always reminded me of a specific led zeppelin song what's the one um, no quarter for some reason uh, in my head and it, they might not even sound similar As we near the end of the record, we get the Glands take on Americana and the sparingly arranged Favorite American. Yeah, that was one of those four track songs. Um, literally, like a little, like, $400 cassette four track, yeah, TAC or TAF cam or something. That was the same night. We we practiced at Ross and it was like 11 at night. And I was getting up at six or seven in the morning to go work. So I was like falling asleep already. And uh, he's like, no, we got to record something. So he, he made me play the guitar for Breathe Out, that harmonic and the, through the memory man. And the, he was manipulating the knob. So that was done after that practice that night. And then also Favorite American, I had to learn the part and play that. And that was a little four, it was a four track recording. It was just him and him singing in a acoustic guitar, those, those tracks on there. And then uh, I played a, 
piano part, I think. Some cheap, like Casio, cheesy. I don't know what it was, but it was it was definitely like not a real, it wasn't even like a good Casio. It was like a cheap Casio with the keys. It felt like toy keys. So the part is, is purposely simple because <laughs> of that. But, but that's the piano. And then uh, and then I had a steel guitar, like a lap steel that I used on some stuff. And that, that's what that other part is. So you had me track the piano and the lap steel. And then uh, Craig heard that and breathe out and and he's like wow that sounds good so let me play some bass and so ross let him right i mean ross i'm sure ross uh initiated it but craig then played bass on breathe out and on uh favorite americans so we kind of we kind of you know dressed up the four track songs and i think i recorded onto the cassette four track it was like i was actually the guitar is actually on the four track and they, then they lifted it and transferred it to a, a two-inch tape and and had the bass put on, you know, like on a real tape machine. So I think that's what that is. Though he was well-loved in Athens, Shapiro did have the reputation of being a bit cantankerous. And it seems that it was through his lyrics, like those in Favorite American, that he was able to show his sweeter side. It's a real pretty song, I think. I like the words in that one, too. That's one of the big things that I've, kind of picked up on and realized after doing this whole project with new West. And I, and I think that there's so many sweet songs on double coda too. Um, and it's like Ross just could be so sweet in his songs, his lyrics. And, and I just love that about, I love that about him because yeah, he's, he's pretty, um, you know, he's a pretty complicated guy, like most of us are, probably, really. But, uh, yeah, he could be. I mean, he didn't suffer fools, and he would he would tell you what he thought, whether it, whether he was going to hurt your feelings or not. And he didn't take shit from people. But he, yeah, he sure could write a really sweet lyrics. And um, uh, I think that Ross was misunderstood because... He did have the capacity to be so, um, to be so sweet, and um, you know, you know, you can tell that listening to his lyrics, and um, I think that he was misunderstood in a way, and by me, for sure. I mean, I may, I can't speak really for anybody else, but for me, I kind of feel that way after he passed away and listening to his stuff, and. Um, it always makes me a little bit sad, you know, that um, that I misunderstood Ross when he was alive or that I, yeah, I didn't get to know that side of him more. The record ends with the track Breathe Out. The arrangement centers around the almost mechanical-like keyboard stabs that contrast nicely with the rest of the song's laid-back instrumentation. With lyrics that evoke feelings of contentment and appreciation, the album closes on a positive note.
I think it has that kind of feel of to it of like the last song, kind of like a sigh. Yeah, like letting kind of a letting go kind of vibe to it. It's really laid back and cool. Uh, Ross played that. It was just some. It was that same cheap Casio with a clavinet sound. I don't know what that thing was. It was just okay. some. It was like a sixty dollar. Maybe just a just a junk plastic keyboard. Like half the patches didn't work. Couldn't move because it would crackle and make static sounds. Ross had me play guitar. I played the, some. I think it was the Ibanez. Uh, or no, I know it wasn't the Ibanez. It was that silver tone convertible guitar he had. That's what that guitar is. Uh, and I played the harmonics, and Ross would I'd hit the note, and Ross would jack up the feedback knob on the memory man and let it run away, and then kind of catch it, pull it back, and let it run away and catch it. That's what that that's what that is. So Ross had a memory man, and he was manipulating while I was playing it, and he, he was recording it. For its original vinyl release, The Glands contains five extra songs, as well as a different track sequence. I had no idea this edition of the album existed. I had heard live versions of the extra tracks, my favorite being the wonderful Something in the Air. they were songs that would be released on the next record. Around 2009, I started rebuying a lot of my favorite records on vinyl and naturally wanted a copy of The Glands. When I finally got my copy and discovered the differences, it was an amazing feeling to be able to hear the recorded versions of these other songs, especially at a time in which the band had been inactive. To the best of my memory, I think that Ross just wanted to... um... I think he just wanted to make the the vinyl and the CD different from each other. Like I think he wanted to make the vinyl special than just than being vinyl as opposed to CD. All along, I think it was known that we were going to put out this record on CD and vinyl. Some people seem to think it was a case of like it was put out on CD first, and then it was decided to put it out on vinyl, and so you know the extra songs were added. I don't think that was the case. I think it was always supposed to be out on both formats. And, um, you know, maybe think Ross was thinking, okay, if it's going to be vinyl, let's make it a double vinyl. Can we make it a double vinyl? And then since it's going to be double vinyl, I need there needs to be some more material on there. Um, and But, you know, I can't really say why he didn't put all of the songs that are on the vinyl onto the CD also, except for maybe... Maybe back in the day, that much music wouldn't fit on a CD. So that's kind of like how I think it went down, that Ross just decided, let's make the the vinyl double and 
I think he liked the idea of making the CD and the vinyl a little bit different from each other, like the vinyl a little bit extra special. For the album art, artist Wayne White is brought in to create the cover's focal point, a framed painting of the album title, printed in a 3D style standing atop a body of water with a ship in the background. Next to the painting is the entrance of a kitchen, and inside is a blurred dog. Side note, if you haven't already, you should definitely check out the wonderful 2012 Wayne White documentary, Beauty is Embarrassing, especially for you Pee Wee's Playhouse fans out there. I don't know if it was Ross's idea or not. It might have been somebody else's idea. Ross might not have known of Wayne White either, although I do know, pretty sure that Ross is aware of the Lamb Chop record, the Nixon record mm-hmm. that Wayne White did also. But I don't know if it was Ross's idea to get to have Wayne do that or if it was somebody at the record label that thought it would be a cool idea. So I don't know whose idea it was to get Wayne to do that. Yeah, and, I've, and it's great. It really, I think it helps a lot to make this record um, even more special is that it's got such a cool cover. Yeah, that's the house where he lived. And that was ground zero for the glands for the whole time we were together, pretty much. When I first started playing with Ross, he was in this house on Sunset Drive um, in Athens. And that's um, I lived there for two years, and Craig McQuiston, our bass player, lived there for um, for a little while too. Spent most of our time rehearsing there, and a good and a, did a lot of recording there too. Yeah, that's Sadie. Yeah, Ross was a dog, big dog lover. He had a lot of dogs over the lo- over the years, um, and Sadie was uh, definitely a very special one. She was a trip. She was sweet. Capricorn releases The Glands on August 1st, 2000. Unfortunately for the band, their ability to reach a wider audience would be lessened when Capricorn folds soon after. It seemed like really soon after this record came out that it turned over to Velocet. I only kind of know what I hear, what I've heard, is that you know Capricorn needed money and they liquidated a lot of their stuff and they just kind of didn't exist anymore musically except for this kind of like small boutique label that was Velocet. And um, I also, I've been told that self-titled record didn't get very good distribution from Capricorn. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what a person or two has told me over the years. We had a friend of ours um, named Emily and we kind of took her on for a trial period as our being our manager. And um, it turned out that we were like so inactive that there wasn't really enough for her to do or she couldn't do her job right mm-hmm. because we weren't active enough. Um, but she did get us this really great uh, friend of ours now named Robin booking agent she got for us that she knew. Um, and Robin is awesome and she really liked us and she got us these great tours uh, opening up for bands like the shins and modest mouse and calexico and so that we got real fortunate with that that was really cool we toured we were touring pretty heavily like six weeks in the spring and six weeks in the fall and then like regional gigs and after like three years or four years because you know we weren't making any money we wouldn't we wouldn't come out from a tour with anything you know, it was like you just come home to a bunch of bills and we weren't making anything. No, there was no, uh, 
there was no money without really going in and really doing it for real. I mean, I was, I was kind of up for devoting my life to the thing. I think at that time, this was, you know, this was from 98 to let's say 2005. Uh, you know, that's kind of all I did. And I just kind of worked around it for with jobs. And I, I think once Ross kind of got some money and stopped working, he just kind of retreated to his house and the, him and an engineer. And it wasn't like, it didn't really feel like a band anymore. It's kind of like this Ross and an engineer. It was cool still, but it wasn't something you could, you know, put your whole life on hold for anymore because it was never going to be, you know, you tell yourself, well, you know, when there's some money, like, well, you know, maybe we can make a living, but there was money, but, you know, it never really went to anybody but Ross. So at some point you kind of had to just give up on the idea of any kind of long-term thing with it. I think after uh, 2005, I mean, Ross really stopped. He wasn't doing anything for like three, it was like three or four years. There would be years where we didn't see each other or hardly even talk to each other at all. But then we would always get back together and we rehearsed much, much more than we ever played out. So we would be getting together and we would rehearse a hardcore. We would rehearse a lot and have long sessions. But yeah, we were always writing and a lot and rehearsing a lot and working up songs and even recording a lot. I mean, we we've there's a bunch of stuff that we recorded that hasn't hasn't ever come out. Over the years, we did a lot of that at Ross's house because um, it didn't cost any money because we weren't making any money because we weren't, you know, there would be long periods of time where we weren't active and we weren't making any money at all. We weren't playing. We weren't recording anything. Or did all that work kind of, you know, we recorded all the songs. I think there was like 30 songs or something. I, I thought some of them sounded really good. Ross didn't want to put it out. And so, therefore, we were never going to get paid because that's how we were going to get paid, Joe and I. Yeah, we kind of just kind of gave up, I think, after a certain point. It's a big mystery to me, is, uh, and especially the bit, really big mystery to me is why we never, why Ross never released anything for 15 years. That's the biggest mystery to me. As far as playing live and stuff like that, it's easier to understand because he was doing School Kids Record Store. He owned that for at least, I think, eight years, and he was managing that store for a while before he owned it. And um, I think that Ross kind of like quickly decided that he didn't really feel like there was any way that we were going to make a career out of being the Glands. In 2010, following the years of inactivity, the band begins to play shows again, notably playing the 2011 reopening of the historic Georgia Theater that had been devastated by a fire in 2009, as well as Athfest, Athens' annual musical festival in 2012. All this renewed activity was exciting for fans, especially those who had never lost hope for that third record. But sadly, on March 26, 2016, Shapiro passes away from lung cancer. I left his hospital room just a couple hours, I think, before he actually passed away. Um, Because I had his dog. Like, the weekend that he passed away, he was in the hospital I think he was given a choice of whether to be in the hospital in Atlanta or in Athens, and I think that they decided that he should be in the hospital in Athens because I guess they had a pretty good idea that it could be really close to the end. So there was people 
uh, in and out of the hospital that whole weekend, a couple days before he died, um, which was really nice. And, um, and yeah, I was there for most of that uh, final stay in the hospital before he passed away. That weekend, he asked me to take care of his, I guess he just had one dog at that point, um, Pixie, who looked a lot like Sadie, kind of the same size, just different colorings. He asked me if I would take uh, Pixie. So then, so then I had Pixie at the house and a new dog. So yeah, I was kind of like going back and forth between hanging out with Pixie at my house and being at the hospital with Ross. But I have to say, you know, I don't, I really didn't um, handle his cancer very well. I didn't really handle his sickness very well. Um, I was kind of afraid of it. And um, I wish that, I wish that I spent more time with him. Once he was diagnosed and and quickly started getting worse, I wish that I had spent more time with him than I did. Ross and I always had a difficult personal relationship, I thought. We we had a much better working, playing together relationship. Um, and uh, I mean, he's definitely one of my, one of my best friends that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but fortunately, you know, there were some people who were, who were really, really good with him mm-hmm. um, at the end of his life. And, you know, were able to and spend a lot of time with him. In the years following the release of the self-titled record, during the times in which the band was both active and inactive, there were various rumors and reports that a third record would eventually be released, that it was either near completion or, in fact, already done. Yet no new music would be heard until after Shapiro's death with the 2018 release of Double Coda. That kind of gets complicated. Like Ross actually put together a record that he asked Capricorn to put out, but Capricorn wouldn't put it out because five of the 10 songs were the extra songs on the self-titled vinyl. I didn't realize that until we were putting all this stuff out again with New West. It didn't, I didn't think the connection. I always wondered why Capricorn wouldn't put this, what we called it, it was like we were calling it like a 10 song EP. That Ross completely, he completely finished it and had it ready to put out, Capricorn wouldn't put it out. That was the thing that came closest to being finished. And so the third record, you know, part of the, the, you know, some people might think of that kind of like 10 song EP as the third record. There were some people that knew about that. And there were some people that got copies of that. It's weird. It's like, it's kind of complicated. There was never a third record in any of our minds, and in any anyone in the band, there was never a specific like third record until the last few years of Ross's life, and then all of a sudden Ross brought all these totally brand new songs into the band, and we started working on all these songs, which Ross did say to us that it was all these songs were going to make up a new record, we're going to make up our next record. So for us, at the end of Ross's life, that wound up being our third record. It's interesting to me to hear people talk about the third record, like, you know, there's a third record, but it just never came out. Because that's not really the case. That was never the case, you know. He told Joe later on that he was never going to release that stuff. He never would have. You know, it's weird, but it's Ross. 
you know, was still around, he probably wouldn't be hearing this, you know, because they had recorded a whole new bunch of songs, and by then he couldn't really sing real well, so I don't know what's going to happen with that stuff. Basically what happened was Derek Olmsted was our bass player for like about the last five years, and um, he was an engineer, and he was really instrumental along with David Barbie and gathering all the songs for Double Coda. He was the one that got all of Ross's hard drives after Ross passed away and went through all of Ross's music. Um, the stuff that hadn't been released, looking for stuff that could be released. And basically, he, he just came kind of to the opinion that that stuff isn't finished sounding enough to release. You know, at the time we were putting out Double Coda, the material that did wind up on Double Coda, that stuff is a lot more finished sounding than the third, than our third quote unquote third record. I'd love to put that out. Um, maybe someday it'd be, I think it would be cool to put that, that record out or those songs out. I just would like people to hear more of Ross's stuff. Music critic Stephen Dusner, in his essay about the band writes, you could argue that not enough people bought Double Thriller and The Glands, but everyone who did became avid fans for life. I can't think of a more apt statement about this band and this record, and I may or may not have gotten a little choked up the first time I read it. This record has meant a great deal to me, as I'm sure it has for many. It's a timeless record that still sounds as fresh and mysterious as it did nearly 20 years ago when it was first released. And as for Rose's feelings on the glands, he feels grateful to have been a part of something that's so well-loved. The more that time goes by, the more I realize of kind of like what a, what a thing it is to some people, you know, which is really a trip. And, that's, and it's, it's really fun. It's really gratifying. Personally, yeah, I think it holds up just as well as it did when it was released. I mean, I guess it's kind of one of those records that's kind of timeless to me. sounds kind of timeless in a way, and it still holds up. Yeah, I'm glad that it's aging well. Um, at least I think it is. I feel really uh, extremely fortunate to to have played on a record that um, that so many people like, or, or that at least people like so much. And um, it's really, it's really, really cool. It's, I mean, it's great. It's kind of, can't really describe um, how fortunate I feel about that. It's a, it's a really great thing. And, uh, and the more that, that time goes on, the more I realize what a cool thing it is. It's just wild. It's, it's pretty amazing that, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing that, um, that it means so much to some people. We were talking earlier, we were kind of like, you know, talking about Ross's sweet, sweeter side and his really pretty and sweet lyrics and stuff. I think that part of his personality embraced this record like that. I think he knows how much it means to some people. Definitely. Thanks for listening to A Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Joe Rowe and Doug Stanley for speaking with me about this very, very special record. 
You can stream and buy The Glands, as well as more from the band's discography, at newwestrecords.com, as well as the various streaming platforms. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.